Unbelief is not unusual. Unbelief is and always has been far too common. Accounts of unbelief are exceedingly well known. Consider the story about French philosopher Voltaire who said on one occasion, if a miracle occurred in the marketplace of Paris and in the presence of 2,000 men, I would rather disbelieve my own eyes than the 2,000. Twenty-five years ago, George and Tina Rollison gave birth to a daughter and uh, they so believed that God had nothing to do with the birth of their child, they named her Atheist Evolution Rollison. Quote, There are so many people named Christian or Christine, this is just one person named Atheist. What's the difference? End quote. A little over a decade ago, there was much excitement when noted atheist philosopher Anthony Flew walked away from his atheism and denied his atheism. In response to his movement away from the unbelief that he had held to for so long, a reporter from a Christian journal interviewed him. He writes this, Flew has had to assure former students that he does not now believe in revealed religion. Quote, even one of my daughters asked if this meant we were going to say grace at meals, he said. The answer is no. Flew is also quick to point out that he is not a Christian. I've become a deist like Thomas Jefferson. And to make things perfectly clear, he told me, I understand why Christians are excited, but if they think I'm going to become a convert to Christ in the near future, they are very much mistaken. Are you Paul on the road to Damascus? I asked him. Certainly not, he said. And he died in that unbelief. You you know people just like that. You know people who are closed to the gospel and refuse to believe. What will it take in order for those who do not believe the gospel to believe the gospel? And if we, if we read the book of Romans and we get to Romans chapter 9, we might say, well, if someone is going to believe, then they must be elect. And so we just need to wait for God to elect them. And there's nothing else for us to do. It's simply on the basis of God's election. But friends, as firm as Paul is on the doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9, that is not what he says in Romans chapter 10. Paul says that the unbelief of unbelievers, particularly unbelieving Israel, is their responsibility. They are unbelievers not because they are not elect. They are unbelievers because they have embraced things that have led them to unbelief. And Paul will unfold in Romans chapter 10 the responsibility of mankind to believe in Christ. It is his responsibility. Any guilt that is due him is not because of non-election, but is because of his rebellion against God. And he will unfold it this way in the first four verses in this passage. For unbelievers to be saved, they must believe and they are responsible to believe. If, if an unbeliever is going to be saved, he must simply exercise faith. It is not a matter of trying to discern, is, is this person elect or is this person not elect? That's not the issue. The issue is you must believe. You must have faith. And you are responsible to believe and have faith. In these four verses, the apostle will answer the question, what do unbelievers need in order to be saved, and he will identify four components that lead to salvation. Four components that lead to the salvation 
of unbelievers. For unbelievers to be saved, they, they simply have to believe. They're responsible to believe. What do they need in order to be saved? Notice one, first of all, that unbelievers need our joyful, compassionate prayers. Unbelievers need our joyful, compassionate prayers. Notice how Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 10. Brother, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. And, and notice that he begins with this word brethren. And when he, when he uses that word brethren as, as kind of a call or an address, he often is using that as a, as a means of demonstrating that he's changing thoughts and he's moving to another thought. And so we see that, for instance, in chapter 12 where he says in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm, I'm making a transition here from all the things that I've talked about in the first 11 chapters about our salvation. I'm transitioning now to a new idea about how that salvation is being applied. So he uses the word brethren, or the, the, the address brethren, to, to denote he's shifting uh, a thought and, and, and moving into a new idea. And that's certainly going on in this passage. But he's also, when he uses that word, also uses it very often to encourage people about their familial relationship. And so he is about to say something which might be hard to understand or difficult to act on and difficult to do. And he wants the readers to be reminded that as I say this thing that is going to be difficult for you to obey and follow, let's remember the the familial relationship that we have, that we are brothers in Christ, we're all unified, we have love for one another, and hear what I'm saying as being an outgrowth and an overflow of the love that we have for one another. And here in in verse 1, that both of those things are going on. He is going to a new idea. He is going to an idea that is going to be difficult. He wants to remind them of something that might be difficult to hear. And what he is going to assert particularly is that that while unbelievers have their own responsibility for their unbelief and they're culpable before God, in verse 1 he's particularly going to point to the fact that we also have responsibility to unbelievers that it's not just on their head, but that, that we have an obligation to them and to serve them in particular ways. And, and he will talk about uh, in verse 8 that he is preaching the word of faith. He's going to talk in verse 14 about how will they hear without a preacher. So there's a responsibility to communicate the truth of the gospel. One of the things we need to do is we just need to talk and open our mouths and explain what the gospel is. But, but in verse 1... He's going to talk about another responsibility that even precedes that. Notice what he says, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire. I I have a longing for them. And and the the word them points back to a group of people. He doesn't specify in verse 1 who that is, but it's obvious. He's just finished talking about Israel and Israel's rejection. They've stumbled over Christ. They They haven't accepted Christ. So he's continuing in that same vein, talking about the nation of Israel. And he says, I have... I have a heart's desire for them. That is, I have an affection and a love for the nation of Israel and, and my people. It's very similar to what he, what he says at the beginning of chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ, he says in 9.1. I am not lying. My, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for, for I wish that I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So, 
So I have such a deep longing for the salvation of fellow Israelites who don't know Jesus Christ, yet I could wish that I, that I were under the condemnation of God so that they would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. I can't do that, but, but if I could, I would be willing to do that. And here he points to the fact not just that he could wish himself a curse, but he says, I have this deep an abiding affection and love for the nation of Israel. I, I have deep compassion for them. And out of that compassion, notice he says he has a heart's desire, compassion for them. And with that, he says also, my prayer to God for them. I, I have a prayer for them. I have a, a regular way of praying for them. I have, I have this compassion for them that overflows into prayers on their behalf. Why, why does he pray? He prays because he believes that God can and God will save all Israel. So they have, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, right? That's 932. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is the person of Jesus Christ. They, they did not pursue righteousness of God through faith in Christ. They, they rejected Jesus Christ. But even having said that, just two verses prior, he does not see that as an impediment to them coming to Christ. They have stumbled, but I still see the possibility of their salvation, the hopefulness of their salvation. And so he says, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He does not believe that their situation is hopeless. They yet can be saved. And he appeals to the only one who can produce that salvation. Notice he says, my prayer to God on their behalf for them. So my prayers terminate on God. I pray to God. Why? Because God is the only one that can bring them to salvation. God is the one who must work in them to to produce the life that only he can give in them. God is the one who must grant to them righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And, and so he appeals to God on their behalf. What's interesting is that, that with this, Paul is indicating that his prayers play some role in their salvation. He's praying for them, believing that he, as he prays, in some way God will respond to that prayer and bring them to salvation. This is very similar to what Jesus himself prayed In Luke chapter 23, as he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Now, that wasn't a a blanket promise of forgiveness to all those who were crucifying, but it was a request that God would work salvation in those, make it available to them, and that they would respond in faith to the one whom they were killing. It was very similar to what Stephen prayed as he's being stoned in Acts chapter 7. Um. Father, forgive them. And, 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 and all these prayers denote that when we pray in some way, God responds to that prayer and produces salvation in those for whom we are praying. He believes his prayers have a role. God has elected. That's true. God has designed, even from the eternity past, and yet the prayers of the saints have a role in producing the salvation of those who do not yet believe. So here's a question for us. Do you and I long for and pray for the salvation of the unbelieving? 
Do we pray for the redemption of Israel? Do we pray for unbelievers to believe? Do our prayers indicate that we believe that there is hope that they can believe and that, and that believing they will be saved by God and Christ? Oh, brothers, we, we must pray. We must pray for the salvation of Israel. God, God is going to culminate history with the salvation of Israel. He has not rejected His people. He has not forgotten His promises to Israel. We can be sure that when the end comes, Israel as a nation will be redeemed. And, and brothers and sisters, we need to join Paul in praying to that end. And then with that, we also need to pray for the salvation of other lost people. And we don't know how, but our prayers do play a role in the salvation of the lost. And as we pray, it will also give us greater compassion and greater delight and greater joy in seeing the lost, even perhaps the lost who are our enemies, come to know Christ as Savior. And praying for their salvation will also give us greater boldness to speak the gospel. Listen to what one writer says about this aspect of prayer and the gospel and unbelievers. As you look, as you look at the crowds of people, and, and there, are, there are masses of people right outside these doors who do not believe. Listen to what this writer says. Jesus saw in the huge crowds an inviting harvest for God. What do we see in the thronging masses around us? we will very largely see what we are looking for. The keen businessman sees in the crowds an inviting commercial harvest for rich financial gain. The forces of sin and lawlessness find in the crowds an inviting harvest for sinful exploitation. What do you see in the crowds of unbelievers? Do we have eyes to see like Christ? that the fields are white for harvest. When you pray, my brothers, be hopeful, be confident. You know, it's tempting to say, it is absolutely no use. I've prayed for years for that person. I just don't think that person can come to Christ. I believe that she has so hardened her heart that she cannot yet come to Christ in salvation. My friend, you do not know that. Until the final breath is drawn, there is an opportunity to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. My brothers, we need to keep praying and we need to keep speaking. Can we agree with Horatius Bonar that part of our problem is we just don't care? Listen to what he says in words to the winners of souls. He that saved our souls has taught us to weep over the unsaved. Lord, let that mind be in us that was in Thee. Give us Thy tears to weep. For Lord, our hearts are hard toward our fellows. We can see thousands perish around us and our sleep never be disturbed. No vision of their awful doom ever scaring us. No cry from their lost souls ever turning our peace into bitterness. Oh, friends, the unbelievers need our joyful, compassionate prayers on their behalf. We need to pray. 
There's a second thing that an unbeliever needs, and Paul identifies that in verse 2. Unbelievers need zeal and knowledge. Now, as you come to, come to verse 2, notice that, that while Paul is going to condemn the Israelites and has condemned them for their unbelief and, and the, the many ways in which they don't believe, notice that he actually gives them a commendation in verse 2. For I testify about them, he says, that they have a zeal for God. They, they have a longing for God. They have an enthusiasm for God. They have a pursuit of God. They have a passion for God. They want God. And, and, and Paul testifies to this, and he, he can testify to it, not just because he's observed it, but because this was Paul's own life as well. This was, this was where Paul lived. This was what Paul was like. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I, I, I was zealous for God, just as you, as he speaks to this crowd, are zealous for God. That was my life as well. I had a passion for God, and Paul will speak about that again in Acts chapter 26. He talks about it in the book of Philippians as well. He also talks about it in Galatians. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 1 about his zeal for God. Notice verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. I was, I was more zealous. I was extreme in my passion for God. I was extreme in my pursuit of upholding the law. I was, I was extreme in my pursuit of righteousness. Paul testifies to the condition of the Israelites because that was his story as well. And friends, zeal for God is commendable. It's even said of, of Jesus in John chapter 2 that he was zealous. So, so zeal is good, but friends, unless it has the right object, unless it's pursued in the right way, it's useless. And that was the nation of Israel. It has been rightly said, it is better to limp in the right direction than to run with all our might in the wrong direction. And that was the problem of Israel. So notice what he says. He he commends them for their zeal in God. But the problem is, end of verse 2, but not in accordance with knowledge. They they had a zeal, but it wasn't a well-instructed, well-taught zeal. It was was headed in the wrong direction. This This is exactly what was wrong with the Pharisees. This is exactly what Jesus continually dealt with with the Pharisees. And so one, on one occasion, when he's dealing with them and their, their misunderstanding of the use of the Sabbath, listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 12 about how they have misused the law in relation to the Sabbath. Matthew 12 verse 5, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Your problem, Jesus says, is for everything you know about the law, you don't get it. You don't know it. You don't understand it. And the problem is not just that they don't understand it for themselves, but the problem is also that they lead others in the wrong way as well. 
So Jesus will say in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you are hindering those who were entering. So the the key of knowledge you've taken away, you don't know, you don't understand. And the problem is not just that, that it has impacted you, but you have led astray many others as well. Passion and energy and zeal will only benefit one if that passion terminates on Jesus Christ. A Christless passion, a Christless zeal is as worthless as a gold-plated but empty water bowl for someone who is dying of thirst in the desert. It's absolutely useless. And what, what these unbelievers needed was knowledge. They needed correction. They needed to be taught. They needed instruction. What, what does God have to say in His Word about righteousness and salvation? And friends, we, we, we cannot convince people. We cannot manipulate them. We, we cannot change them. We cannot change their hearts. We can appeal to them. We can request of them. We can, we can plead with them. We can pray for them, but we cannot change them. But the one thing that we can do is we can inform them. We can tell them this is the truth of what salvation is about. And that is what they need. They need to know what salvation is about. Isn't this exactly what Philip did when he came across the Ethiopian eunuch? Acts chapter 8, verse 30. The Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked the question, Do you understand what you are reading? No. How can I understand this? Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning from this scripture from Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. He didn't know. And Philip just asked the question, Do you know? No. Let me tell you. Just needed to be informed, just needed to be taught, just need to be trained in what the scriptures say. Well, friends, why, why has Israel not known? Why has not Israel believed correctly? Because they don't know. They don't know. And they need to be told. And the unbelievers around us, the unbelievers outside these walls, they need the same thing. They need to know what the truth is. What, what do they specifically need to know in order to believe correctly? Paul identifies that in verse 3. Unbelievers need God's Righteousness. Unbelievers need God's righteousness. Notice verse 3 begins with that little word for. So he's connecting their lack of knowledge. They, they, they're, they are zealous, but not in accordance with knowledge. They're, they're zealous about the wrong things. And then in verse 3, he identifies two things that they don't know. Not knowing about God's righteousness and, secondly, seeking to establish their own righteousness and the result of those two wrong ways of thinking is that they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So we can say from this verse about unbelievers that they need God's righteousness, that is they need to learn God's righteousness. They need to learn God's righteousness. Notice Paul says not knowing about God's righteousness. He doesn't mean by that they didn't know that God is righteous. Certainly they would read the Old Testament and know God's a righteous God. What they didn't know is how one comes to be righteous before God. 
They did not know what Paul has been talking about in this entire book, Romans 1.17, the theme of the book, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is, the righteousness of God can be apprehended only by faith because, he says, the righteous man will live by faith. It's always about faith. The one who is righteous, it's always by faith. And that is exactly what the Israelites misunderstood. They did not know, they did not understand that the righteousness that God demands is the righteousness that God also provides through Jesus Christ. And 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 the, the, the whole book of Romans is an unfolding of that particular idea, but particularly in chapters 3 and 4, we see that righteousness comes through faith. The problem that the Israelites had is a problem that Martin Luther would much later have as well. Listen to what Luther says about God's righteousness. He said, I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically of the formal or active justice, as they called it, that justice by which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unrighteous. So as I think about the righteousness of God, all I can think about is God condemns sinners. then Then he says this, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, self-righteousness, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I could not believe that He was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Indeed, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Then he continues, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of Scripture showed itself to me. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Once I understood that righteousness comes by faith, it became a gateway to heaven. I rejoiced in this righteousness that I could not attain on my own. This provision of righteousness was always granted by God by grace through faith. They, 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 the Israelites, were not wrong in understanding that God was righteous. They were simply wrong in thinking that they could attain that righteousness on their own and that they did not need the righteousness of God to be granted to them. And that leads us to the second problem of the Israelites and what they needed, and that is They need to rid themselves of self-righteousness. They need to rid themselves of self-righteousness. Instead of appealing to God for His righteousness, the the Israelites supposed that, that they could be righteous enough before God on their own. So notice what Paul says, middle of verse 3, they were seeking to establish their own. That is, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness, not not depending on God. They, they pursued self-righteousness. Each individual Israelite was constantly pursuing his own, his own form of righteousness. And friends, that was never enough. 
This is exactly what Jesus identifies in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard it said... In other words, it has been taught to you by the Pharisees and religious leaders. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and six times he identifies different things that had been taught about righteousness. And Jesus says, no, the bar of righteousness is not way down here that anybody can attain to. The bar of righteousness is not murder. The bar of righteousness is anger. The bar of righteousness is not, I haven't committed adultery. The bar of righteousness is, have you ever lusted in your heart? The bar of righteousness is not, have you hated your enemy? The bar of righteousness is, have you loved your enemy? And all those things are way beyond the human capacity for anyone to do. And they have completely missed what it means. They, 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 they have sought their own kind of righteousness, and that kind of righteousness will never lead them to God. And their zeal for self-righteousness was, in fact a one-way ticket to hell. I've, I've often thought about a story I heard about many years ago now about a, a woman in the late 1980s that was driving on um, some freeways in eastern Los Angeles. And, and while she was driving on the freeway, it was late at night, somewhere between midnight and 2 a.m., she fell asleep. And she was awakened when she crashed through a guardrail and then started to plummet over the side of the embankment and head to a street below. And, and her car was stopped by the left, left rear tire from going over the edge. That, that left rear tire just clung tenaciously to the embankment or bridge and, and kept her from going over. And immediately... A number of other people stopped. A half dozen vehicles stopped and, and one of the vehicles had a rope and so they took that rope and tied it off on the car and, and the people were holding on to that car to keep it from plummeting over the edge until rescue workers showed up. And a number of fire trucks showed up. One fire truck went up from underneath the street underneath and, and pushed the ladder up and pushed the ladder against the car in order to stabilize the car to keep it from moving. And then other fire trucks went up top and they attached chains and cables to the car and they finally got the car towed back to the, um, to, to off the embankment and, and to a place of safety. Two and a half hours and 25 people working to secure this woman's safety says the L.A. fire captain after it was all over. It was kind of funny. She kept saying, I'll do it myself. Oh, really? <laughs> From inside the car, you're going to do the work of 25 people that took them two and a half hours? You really, you're going to save yourself? And friends, that's a picture of what self-righteousness tries to do. It's a flaunting before God. I'll do it myself. I don't need your help. Thank you very much. And friends, the first step to being saved is to acknowledge, I am not righteous. I cannot be righteous. I will never be righteous. I need a righteousness that does not belong to me. I need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Israelites needed to rid themselves of self-righteousness. Says John Calvin, the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. We need to help unbelievers soak in Romans 3, 8 to 20. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. You are not righteous. No matter what you do, it is never enough. They need to rid themselves 
of self-righteousness, there's a third part to understanding a need for God's righteousness, and that is they need to humble themselves to God's righteousness. Because they did not know and understand the righteousness of God, because they kept on attempting to assert their own self-righteousness, Notice the end. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That is, they refused to place themselves under God's righteousness. Their pride kept them from submission to God. Faith in Christ requires submission to God. Faith in Christ is is always an acknowledgement, I cannot do this. I can't attain to, to righteousness that will please God on my own. I can't get there on my own. And my friends, that is exactly where the flesh is most resistant. You remember what Paul said in chapter 8? Listen to what he says in verse 7 about the flesh. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. How is it hostile toward God? Notice what he says. For it does not subject or submit itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. It, it refuses to submit itself to God's law, to God's standard, to God's righteousness. They won't do it. And this, this is the failure of all those who reject Christ. They fail to submit to Christ. And what was true of Israel... In the Old Testament, what was true of Israel in the time of Christ is still true today. Why do people, why do unbelievers not believe? It is not because they are not elect. They don't believe because they rebelliously cling to their own self-righteousness and they refuse to submit themselves to God. God will not be sovereign over them. They will not follow them. They will not submit to Him. It is because of their rebellious pride. One of the greatest examples of that was Judas himself. Listen to what John MacArthur says about Judas. Judas went to hell on purpose. He knew there was a hell and he made, a, he, made, he made a choice to send himself there. It's as if he said, the agony is too great. I want relief. I'm going to send myself to hell. His downfall came because he loved himself too much. He rejected salvation too easily. He resented Jesus too strongly. My friends, Jesus provides for us the righteousness that we imperfect men need in order to be declared perfectly righteous. But that reception of that gift demands humility. It takes no work to be saved. You cannot work and be saved, but it does demand humility that says, I can't, will you save me? The act of humility is the very act that is too much for some to contemplate. They are unwilling to acknowledge their dependence on God to receive the gift. If someone is going to be saved, it is only going to be when they come to realize their need for a righteousness which is not inherent to them, but is outside of them, but is provided to them through Christ by God. And they can have that by simply believing. Unbelievers need God's righteousness. There's a fourth reality of what Fourth component of what unbelievers need, and that is they need Christ. Notice verse 4. They need Christ. My friends, Christ is and always has been the goal. Notice what he says. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. This might be the most succinct statement in the New Testament about the relationship between Christ and the law. The problem is with, with its succinctness, there's been much debate about what the apostle actually meant with the word end. When he says Christ is the end of the law, what does he mean by that? And there are a number of different options, but basically it comes down to two primary options for what Paul means by that. He could mean that he is the end, that is, he is the termination point of, of the law. So that when Christ came, the law ceased to function. When, when Christ came, the law comes to an end. When Christ comes, its effectiveness in providing righteousness is over. It's done. It's finished. Or it could mean, secondly, that Christ is the purpose of the law, that he is the goal toward which the law is always pointing. And, and let me just, let me just make it most simple. And this is the thing, I, I wrestled with this and thinking through all the different textual issues that were here all, the, all, uh, all week. And, and finally, on Thursday afternoon, it just struck me. It can't be the termination of the law because very simply the law never could provide righteousness. The point of the law was never to make people righteous. The point of the law was to demonstrate to people you aren't righteous. Remember what Paul says in chapter 7, verse 4? My brothers, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. In other words, the law pointed out your deadness so that you can be joined to Christ. Verse 5, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to produce fruit of for death. So, so while we were underneath the law, all the law did was just incite us to sin. In fact, he says in verse 7, I came to know what sin was by the law. The law just revealed sin. The law demonstrated my sinfulness. The law had no power to remove that sin from me. So when Paul says Christ is the end of the law for the purpose of righteousness... He doesn't mean that that the law's effectiveness in providing righteousness is over. It never had that effectiveness. What he means is that Christ is the goal of the law to produce righteousness. So that Christ has always been the one to whom the law was pointing, demonstrating, I cannot, but there is one who is coming who will be able to keep that law and his righteousness will be imputed to all those who believe. That's what Matthew 5.17 is all about. That Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but He came to fulfill the law. And having fulfilled the law, now that righteousness of Christ can be imputed to us. Says one commentator, the law was a signpost to faith in Christ. And Christ, Christ not only is the end for the provision of righteousness, but then He also becomes the end for which we live. So in chapter 8, He says in verse 29, that He works all things together for good so that He, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. He, He is the end to produce our righteousness and He is the end so that we live in righteousness. So Christ fulfills the law, is the goal of the law, to produce righteousness. And notice this as well. Christ is available to everyone. 
Notice what he says at the end of verse 4. For righteousness to everyone who believes. The, The word is not just everyone, it's the word all. And in the smallness of that word, there is a broadness of possibility. Everyone will receive this righteousness. And when Paul says everyone, notice he's been talking about Israel, right? But he doesn't say for every Israelite who will believe. He says for everyone, period. So not just Israelites, but Israelites and Gentiles, non-Israelites. Anyone who believes. It is, it is limitless. This righteousness is available to all. But there is, there is one limit on it. Notice that at the end of verse 4. It is for righteousness to everyone who believes. To receive the righteousness of God, one must believe. God just doesn't say, well, well, everyone is going to be declared righteous. You, friend, must believe in Jesus Christ. Faith is absolutely necessary. And friends, as we think about evangelism and engaging in conversations with people with the intent to persuade them, this is the primary focus of what unbelievers need to know. This is what we need to be communicating. Friends, they need our prayers Friends, they, they, they need knowledge. They need a knowledge about what righteousness really is. And they need a knowledge about how they are not righteous. They need God's righteousness and they need Christ. They need to believe in Christ and have faith in Christ. As we evangelize, let's make it clear. No self-righteousness, no works is ever enough. Christ's righteousness, on the other hand, is always enough and always satisfying to both God and man. And friends, if you are here this morning you, and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and you have not been saved, your sin has not been washed, you you have no confidence that God is looking on, on, on you with favor. Or if you are the kind of person that Paul has talked about here, that, that you're a, a, attempting to establish your own righteousness, you're trying to say, I'm good enough. Friend, you must believe in Christ only today. You must trust Him And friend, the good news of this passage is you can. The question isn't, are you elect? The question is, will you believe? The question is, will you trust? The question is, will you have faith in God, in Christ? And this passage is so hopeful because it offers the provision of salvation to anyone who would believe. But it's also a warning because it points out how not to be saved. How can you avoid salvation? It's really quite simple. It's simply a four-step process. If you don't want to be saved, just then, then simply ignore the pleas and prayers of a godly people around you who are seeking your salvation. If, if you don't want to be saved, be zealous for what you want and ignore what God demands. If you don't want to be saved, just keep trying to be righteous on your own. You just keep pursuing your own self-righteousness. You keep asserting how good you are and you will not be saved. You, you won't be saved by Christ. And if you don't want to be saved, reject and do not believe the singular goal of God's gospel, Jesus Christ. It is true, my friends, that God chooses and elects to salvation. That's chapter 9. But friends, it's also true, chapter 10, that all are responsible because anyone can believe. Anyone can trust 
And anyone who believes will be imputed with the righteousness of Christ. As we come to the end of this passage, I think there's only one fitting thing to do, and that is to emulate the Apostle Paul. And brothers, we need to pray. And so I invite you to bow with me and let us commend our hearts to God in prayer for those who do not believe. Our Father, we come to you this morning thinking about this passage and we confess our prayerlessness. It's easy to say that in some regard because we know of very few who would say, I pray enough. But Father, we come confessing and agreeing not just that we do not pray enough, but we pray far too little for those who need salvation. Our prayerlessness is in regard to those who need it most. Our prayers are too self-centered. Our, our prayers are preoccupied with, with us and our needs and our desires and our wants and our hurts. And we forget that as we are already in the kingdom and already in Christ, we have what we need. We're safe. And we care far too little for those who need Christ yet. Oh, Father, would you forgive our prayerlessness? Would you forgive our prayerlessness because our prayerlessness speaks of an unbelief in your ability to save? The fact that we don't pray for the salvation of those whom we know are dying says that we really don't believe that you are compassionate towards them to save them or that you have an ability to save them. Would you forgive our prayerlessness? Would you forgive our prayerlessness because it it denotes a, a lack of compassion for those who need saving? We have forgotten that those who need saving are in the same condition where we used to be, where we needed you, and you had compassion on us. And so, Father, would you forgive our lack of compassion and would you make us to be compassionate towards others? As we pray, our Father, we, we pray for the salvation of Israel specifically. They are your people. They are your priority. And we long for them to come to salvation as a nation so that your promises that were made to the nation, beginning with even the time of Abraham, will be shown to be true. And so that you will be made glorious in Israel and you will be made glorious among the nations. Oh, Father, would you, would you bring about the culmination of your historical plan for this planet and save the people of Israel and so that the end of the age can come. We pray as well, Father, not just for the salvation of Israel, but we pray for those also whom we personally know who are lost. And Father, even as we pray in this moment, would you bring to mind specific people whom we individually need to be praying for? We pray, Father, for our fathers, our mothers, our grandparents, our children, how many of our children are rebellious against you and do not walk with you? Oh, Father, would you, would you be gracious to open their hearts to 
produce salvation in them. We pray, our Father, that you would save our bosses, our supervisors, our employees, our neighbors, the people with whom we regularly conduct business, barbers and hairstylists, grocery clerks, mechanics, home repairmen, house cleaners, yardmen, people who who cross our paths every day and we have a relationship with. Would you give us compassion to see their lostness? Would you give us compassion to pray for them? And then would you give us compassion as we will see over the next weeks and boldness to speak to them the gospel of salvation? Give us eyes to see those who are perishing without you and compassion to pray and boldness to speak for their salvation. We pray that these who are unbelievers that we know and those who are passionate for religion will be made to see their need for your righteousness, that their zeal for religion is not enough, that they need a zeal for your righteousness and your truth. Give them dissatisfaction with religiosity and give them a desire for your righteousness. We ask, the, we ask our Father that the unbelievers that we know will give up their own self-righteousness. Help them to realize the futility of what they are attempting to accomplish on their own. Help them to comprehend the provision of what you gave in your righteousness through Christ. And most of all, our Father, we ask that they might apprehend Christ. We long that the one who is the stumbling block to Israel will become the joy and end for which Israel lives. We, We ask that the one who is a stumbling block to our family members, our friends, our neighbors, will become to them their greatest treasure, their greatest joy, and that they will come to Him in faith. Father, would you take this gospel message and the need of unbelievers and what they need to hear. And would you make it clear in our own minds as we communicate it? And might you again give us a passion for you and a passion for the completion of your gospel purposes in Israel and to all those who do not yet believe. Father, would you accomplish that in us? Would you accomplish that through us? We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.